This is Fate's Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with Sam and Dennis. This week, we're talking about Doctor Who. Actually, the very first episode of Doctor Who, way back in 1963, An Unearthly Child. And we also talk about the series finale of The Good Place. If you listen to us on Apple Podcast, make sure that you give us a follow if you haven't already. And also, leave us a review if you don't mind. It helps other folks find us. We hope you enjoy the show. You know, since we started this new format, I, I, I've been trying to keep in mind, like, having something semi-interesting or outrageous to say at the start of the cold open. I told it, <laughs> totally whiffed it this week. Nothing. Last week, we were talking about Dewey Cox. Right. And Walk Hard. And this week, don't really have a whole it, lot. You know, it's just been one of those weeks. We Normally, we record on the weekends, so I feel like for both of us, there's a little bit of respite. Not, not, not a ton, you know. I mean, obviously... Being a parent and and in the middle of this pandemic in general, and certainly in your case with two kids, like it's it's you know the weekend comes and it's not really that put your feet up, you know watch TV break that that is idealized in all the sitcoms of the fifties. Um, no, <laughs> no, we've had a good uh, the last couple of weekends. We we've kind of uh, loosened up a little bit about what we're not comfortable doing. So the last couple of Saturday mornings, where we've gone out to a park. Uh, I think I mentioned a couple episodes ago uh, the uh, the bad experience that we had at the indoor play center. So uh, we're like, screw it. It's warm enough. We're just going to go to a park. Um, mm-hmm. So we've gone to a park that was one of the reasons why we moved to this neighborhood, to be honest. And yeah. uh, it's great. Very few other kids around. When there were kids around, everybody was respectful of space, had some nice chats with other parents. Um, so the last couple of weekends, we've had a chance to like you know get out and enjoy uh, uh, the false spring that we've been having here in Chicago. Right, until it decided to snow yesterday. These last, yeah, and then yesterday it was like, yeah, wind, snow. Like, literally, I was, I was sitting yesterday morning before everybody else woke up, and the wind was blowing so hard I could feel the building shaking. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, yeah, it's funny because similarly, Hattie and I had gone to the park almost every day last week, um, the the playground, and uh, usually we would get there and there would maybe be, you know, one other parent and child there. Uh, a couple of days, we basically had the place to ourselves almost the entire time we were there. Um, but a couple of days, there were more people there, and um, but everyone, you know, was wearing masks and... Uh, Again, respectful of space for the most part. It got we we went on Saturday um, as a family, and it, it, it got a little crazy at some points. Um, I had I had my first, I, I suppose, like parental moment with with other children because there was a, a little boy who was like running around on the playground, and uh, he 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 basically like Jessica was holding Hattie's hand, and he tried to like squeeze in between them, and so I was like, uh. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait for her to go first, please. You know, and uh, luckily, you know, I, that was all I did. I didn't, you know, I, I, I didn't have to really like raise my voice or get too stern, but it was just kind of in retrospect. It was it was something that, you know, all of a sudden I was like, oh, man, 
now I'm, you know, in that kid's eyes, I'm the asshole that told him to slow down. See, I'm so nervous with that because we have this similarity. I don't know if you feel the same way. Like, I am very conscious of what I look like when I I am out as a parent. And if you don't know me, I can be kind of scary looking. I can can be kind of creepy looking depending on, you know, how I decide to dress on any given day. Uh, So I am really nervous about talking to other people's kids. Even as a parent, even in the presence of my kid. Had it not been for him, like, you know, pushing into Hattie and Jess, I probably wouldn't have said anything either. But that was like that moment where it just kind of like, I was like, uh, -uh, no, 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 you don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, but for the most part, no, it has been really nice. And, and, and the weather has been, has been good enough to go out and do that. And, uh, you know, Hattie has just had a ball with it. So it, it, it's strange because we get these little glimmers of, of, of things kind of finally progressing. Um, but then, you know, every once in a while I'll hear somebody say or do something. And uh, I'm just sort of like, well, we're not quite there yet. Like, <laughs> it's like we're, we're close, but we're not there yet. Um, so I'm just trying to be mindful, you know, and, and obviously respectful of, of, of others, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah, that it is. But we're not here to talk about parenting, although we could, uh, you know, there, we, there, we could. I, I discovered there's another podcast out there called two dads review and oh, gosh. They, they do, they, they, they jump around kind of like what we're doing right now, but, uh. Yeah, here we are. Fates Wide Wheel, a Quantum Leap podcast with uh, Sam, Dennis, two tired dads. Right. Three days after daylight saving time. Yeah. Yeah. Daylight savings time. What a son of a bitch. I know. <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it was pretty good here. Um, they went to bed fine Sunday night. Three o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, they both decided they just wanted to be awake for two hours. No, uh, that's that was fun. stressful. Yeah, that was stressful for Eleanor Harrison. He was just perfectly content to play in his room, like he, <laughs> he didn't come out. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I just heard him in his room, you know, with the light out. But you know, he was like singing to himself or, or or quote reading his books, just like sitting with his books and reciting out of his books what he remembers. But uh, yeah, we're coping. We're coping. We're doing yeah. all right. Yeah. Yeah, it hasn't been too bad. I think honestly, I think I've struggled with it more than anybody else in this household. Like it, it just threw me for a bit of a loop for whatever reason, and I don't understand why. I'm usually pretty good about it. It usually doesn't bother me that much, but um, yeah, it's. I, I think it's just been my sleep patterns, you know, being slightly thrown off, and you know that idea that I would, you know, if I was going to bed at, at eleven. Uh, or so, you know, 11 to 12, somewhere through there and waking up, you know, between seven and seven thirty, I was fine. But now it's like, I'm staying up until 12, sometimes 1230, because that is 11, 1130, you know, based on what my body was used to, but I'm still having to wake up at seven, seven thirty. Yep. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it's thrown me for, for a little bit of a loop. And, and, and I've been conscious of it with Hattie in so much as like, you know, last night she went to bed very early. And I thought to myself, not only did she go to bed early, but she went to bed early because of daylight savings time. So it's like this, you know, is, is this okay? Are we, you know, are we doing the right thing here? But kids are resilient, much more resilient than their, you know, nearly 40 year old father. So oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of time, Sam, indeed, this week we're, we're talking about Dr. Who. This is, this is, this is your field. 
I'm very, very excited. I am, uh, I am but a baby. It's funny because I was telling Jess earlier uh, that I was very excited for this. Um, you know, it's something that early on before, you know, because about almost a year before we started this podcast is when I started to think about like, oh, a podcast, that would be something fun to do. Because I hadn't been on stage uh, in a about a year, I want to say, at that point, maybe a little bit less than that, actually. But it, it, it you know, my, my acting career had obviously like kind of ground to a halt. And most of that was self-imposed. And uh, sure. I, I just I mean, wanted I mean, a creative I mean, outlet. You know, in fairness, in Chicago, if you want to be in something, you could be in something. You could go oh. out there. You could do anything. You know, you could do it. But it's just a matter right. of how, how badly do you want to get out there? What, uh, how, what, how small of audiences do you want to play for? What quality yeah. of work do you want to do? I had yeah. a, I had a mentor, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before. I think I've told you, but I don't think I've ever mentioned it on the podcast. I had a mentor, a very, very good friend of mine, and he, he once told me, he's like, there's three things. There's three things that you got to ask yourself anytime you're going to accept a role. Is it something I want to work on? Am I going to be working with people I want to work with? And is it going to pay me the money that I want to make for this job? And if you can say yes to two out of those three, then you should absolutely do it. It just kind of got to a point where it was going to be far and few between that I was going to be able to say yes to two out of those three um, in, 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 a, you know, in, a, in a setting that, that, I, that I wanted to kind of continue. But uh, that's neither here nor there. I, I wanted a creative outlet. I, I wanted something to do. Uh, I'd been kind of inspired by some fellow podcasters, and I started to think about it. And one of the first things that I thought about, you know, having as, as a subject that I would talk about was Doctor Who. And so now here we are, you know, some three years later uh, in our, you know, in our quantum leap journey. And um, and I'm and, and I'm getting the opportunity to do just that. So I'm so I'm very, very excited about this. Here we go. Uh, but I but one of the things that I mentioned to you earlier, I thought that for the benefit of people listening that haven't seen it before, I kind of wanted to be able to take this journey in a lot of ways through your eyes. Sure. Um, since you had not seen the first episode of Doctor Who before, um, broadcast November 23rd, 1963, An Unearthly Child, uh, you've now seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, take it away. Tell sure. Us. Sure. Here we go. Now, I um, we were saying off mic before we started recording, I, I think... Um, for the benefit of our listeners, like back when we, like Quantum Leap, like we assume if we were listening, you probably had seen the episode, you were familiar with it. We didn't have to do like the scene by scene breakdown. Um, this time, maybe not do a scene by scene breakdown, but I got the wiki pulled up here um, and, and I'll just read what the plot of the first episode is about here. Um, at Cold City School, teachers Ian, Chester, Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright have concerns about pupil Susan Foreman who has an alien outlook on England. When the teachers visit her address to investigate, they encounter a police box and hear Susan's voice inside. An old man arrives, but refuses to let the teachers inside the police box. They force their way inside to find Susan in a futuristic control room that is larger than the police box exterior. Susan explains that the object is a time and space machine called the TARDIS, And the old man is her grandfather, who reveals that he and his granddaughter are exiles from their own planet. Refusing to let Ian and Barbara leave, he sets the TARDIS in flight and ends up in the Stone Age. 
And there it is. Does that seem like a pretty accurate description of the of the first episode? Oh, yeah. 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 Without a doubt. I think that, you know, there's uh, some interesting things that happen over the course of those first, you know, 25 minutes um, that really set this, the, the template for you know, everything that's to come. Um, the, you know, the, the character of the doctor, especially from 2021 eyes, you know, the, the way that the character was grown over the course of the series, uh, was very different, obviously to, to the way that we would see character growth or development happen in, in a series today. Um, but, but so much is set up just in those first 25 minutes. Um, and especially the mystery, uh, the mystery of both of these characters. And it's interesting because in a lot of ways, you know, the, the doctor is not, um, especially in the original pilot, because very unusual for the BBC, they actually shot the first episode twice. And even though it's called the pilot, the BBC didn't do pilots. They didn't need to because they're not trying to sell a TV show because it's government funded, you know? So, so when they decided to create a TV show, they just went and did it, you know? And, and, um, but what happened is that the first episode when Sidney Newman, who was kind of the, the creator of Doctor Who in a lot of ways, viewed the episode, he took Verity Lambert, the producer, and Waris Hussein out to dinner for Chinese, and he told them, do it again, uh, because he thought that it wasn't quite right. And the character of the Doctor in particular was very stern, very angry, very kind of, you know, mean and shouty. And obviously that changed to what we see uh, in the actual aired episode. But even then, he's still got a little bit of a, a dark side to him. You know, he's a guy that, that, that basically traps these two, you know, teachers in the TARDIS with him and Susan, flicks a switch and takes them back in time, you know, 100,000 years. So, uh That sense of mystery, that that, that sense of, um, you you know, you don't really know um, what he's going to do. He's an unpredictable sort of fellow. It's all set up from the the get-go. But yeah, I, I, I... Again, I want to hear. I want to hear my what thoughts you have to say. <laughs> uh, so, so first thoughts. Um, and again, as a reminder, um, I, I have seen most of the first season of the revival or the reboot. What do they? What do they? What do fans call the the new series? Revival, reboot, uh, uh, return. Uh, it's yeah. It's 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 usually just called new Who compared new to who. old okay. Who, like classic. Um, it's classic Who and new Who, but but it, it goes by all those. Yeah, right. revival, reboot, etc. Yeah, uh, I, I've seen the first season of New Who and a, and a handful of other episodes. Uh, the the first thing that, that that caught me is just the the opening credits or the opening introduction, like for what you call it, like even from 1963, relatively low budget TV. When you adjust for time. For me, it had the same wow factor that, like, the intro of the new Who does. Yeah. Um, I was pleasantly surprised. Like, it's virtually the same kind of... It's the same theme music. Um, yeah. Um, so that that drew me in first. Um, and I really like the... Like, it starts off with the teachers talking about this strange pupil and about how knowledgeable she is about like certain things like history and English. Like she's very knowledgeable in some things and like, she's just completely lost and and, and dumb on other things. Um, And so I really, 
I really like that setup, and it was almost uh, it was like a setup of a good Twilight Zone mm-hmm. episode. Um, um, and I really like that. And so they, they don't go into as much in the, in, in the plot that is read. So basically, like they're trying to plot to get to where this this Susan, my kids are. You hear them? Yeah. <laughs> There's Eleanor. She's up. Um, but one of the teachers explains that, like, she's tried to be able to, like, visit Susan at her home to get an idea of what her home life is, but Susan is very elusive. Um, so they end up, like, uh, like following her her home, or which is, like, the address is actually, like, a junkyard where the police yard is, is, is sitting. Um, so I, I especially enjoyed the first half of the episode. And this speaks to kind of what you said and everything about, about the doctor and how he was originally portrayed and, and, you know, and they shot it and they reshot the pilot. Uh, I thought the doctor was the least interesting person in this episode. I would love to see the first pilot where they told him to go back and reshoot it because everything that you just said, I'm like, you just described him. Oh, they (laughs) dialed that back. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so, yeah, I could certainly like how, like I said, like adjusting for early 60s, like even for low, but because like BBC, like they're known for like their, their TV shows are typically like a little, probably a little bit lower budget than, than a lot of like mainstream primetime shows. Am I right in that? Yeah, I would say that that's true. I mean, it depends. They, you know, they've been known to pour, you know, more money one way or the other, but they're also famous, especially, you know, throughout the, because one of the things too that's important to remember is that we're only about 17 years removed from World War II when the BBC drama department had suspended all of its activities. So the, they'd only been back and up and running for about 17 years at this point. And a lot of what they did was during a period of austerity. So it was, you know, do this for as little money as you possibly can. Now, you know, once you get to like the 70s, there's some more, you know, opulent productions and, you know, certainly, you know, even in the 90s. But there were periods of time, you know, where certainly through the 60s and the 80s where, yeah, budgets were cut for, for you know, every show. And, and, and they tried to, you know, always reuse um, props and costumes. And this isn't just exclusive to Doctor Who. This is kind of across the board. It's one of the reasons why they do costume dramas so well. It's because they have all that stuff and have had all of that stuff for years and years and years and years. Now today, today, it's very different today. You know, they, they, they spend the money and, you know, cause they, I, I think that there is kind of an idea that they need to compete with a global audience as opposed to before, you know, they were basically the only game in town. You know, you had ITV and ABC TV, but they were relative at this point, especially in 1963, they were newcomers. You didn't have, you know, uh, uh, competing, excuse me, competing networks, uh, the way that you do now, you know, you, you pretty much, you turned your TV on and it was BBC and that was what you watched. There's something very comforting in that. In a weird way. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, now give us 30 years and we'll be tuning, we'll be tuning into Amazon TV and that'll be our only choice. That's it. Whatever the savior, Jeff Bezos. No. Um, when earth is renamed Amazon. Well, yes. When it's like, yes. Return to your return to your Amazon pod, human. It is, yeah. it is time to wind down for the day. Your packages are home. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, 
I really enjoyed the first episode. Like, like I said, like watching it through the lens, like I could tell, like, yeah. Like, I mean, especially like as a kid, because as I understand, like this is kind of geared, it was kind of more geared towards like a kid's show. Yeah. A, a little so bit. It, 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 you know, the interesting thing about that is there are and have been competing narratives. Um, and, and luckily, I think today we have enough fact to, to know that the show was indeed created to kind of fill a niche between like children's and young adult programming. Uh, the decision was made, however, to give it to the BBC drama department as opposed to the BBC children's department, which was a bone of contention for many years, believe it or not. Like the children's department was very upset that they didn't get this show and, and the drama department got to produce it instead. Um, a lot of that had to do with Sidney Newman, who's uh, someone I mentioned before. Sidney Newman um, was the, the head of the BBC drama department, and he, which is he's a fascinating individual. Uh, he, he first of all because he was Canadian, he, he was not a native Brit. Uh, he was a, a uh, Russian Jew, which was also a, a, you know something that was. Um, different for the time. Uh, and he, when, when the idea came that they wanted to create a science fiction program, um, for the BBC, uh, he was the one that was sort of tasked with coming up with it. And he is credited with the creation of the character of the doctor, the creation of the TARDIS and the title of the show, Dr. Who. There's a little contention as to whether or not he actually came up with Dr. Who or not. Um, most people give him the credit for it, so I'm willing to just roll with that. Uh, he, he did have two other um, writers that helped him, um, um, C.B. Weber, or C.E. Weber, excuse me, and Donald Wilson. Um, they were the ones, Weber in particular was the one that kind of wrote the, the Bible for the show um, early on. Uh, Newman edited it heavily. There were a lot of things that Weber wrote that Newman wasn't too keen on. The fascinating thing about that is, without going into too much detail, there were things that Weber wrote that would be picked up on later by future producers, and they would decide to use those elements of the show. In particular, the sort of the modern mythology of the show is built around one element especially, which was the theft of the TARDIS, that the Doctor stole the TARDIS and that his people were after him. Um, This was picked up on during the second doctor's run, especially. Um, and then today that's like the bedrock of the show is that, that, you know, uh, he, he stole the TARDIS and has been on the run ever since, you know, that's kind of just the, one of the, the major elements of who the character is, but Newman didn't like that. So they kind of struck it. So it didn't get mentioned early on in, in the show. Um, but it's kind of fascinating that, you know, there was enough of a presence in the notes that were given in this Bible that, you know, future writers and producers would, would pick up on it. Terrence Dix in particular was one of them. Um, but a lot of this was influenced by the success of a show called Quatermass, which was a show that uh, was a sort of a miniseries that had aired in the 50s. Um, and it was about a uh, alien invasion um, of the Earth, but, but in a very sort of the show was not about spectacle as much as it was about the, the intrigue and the mystery. And Professor Quatermass was the, the main character, and, and he was the one that, that kind of had to you know solve the problem, basically. And uh, the Doctor is heavily influenced by that character. Um, and, and indeed, the notion to create the show is heavily influenced by that, that program, uh, because it had been so successful. Unfortunately, the original serial doesn't survive, it didn't survive. We've mentioned before the BBC had a habit of you know, junking old programs. Doctor Who suffered from that as well. Um, 
But Sidney Newman, he would come up with a lot of this. The really fascinating thing is that he would enlist out of all of the producers working at the BBC and working in the drama department at the time, he and he, he, he gave the show initially to someone else and they were like, no, I'm not interested. So he hired a former production assistant of his from ABC TV by the name of Verity Lambert. She was 24 years old. Uh, she was also Jewish and uh, brought her into the BBC and gave her this show. Verity Lambert is on the record as saying that her nearest age-wise colleague in the department that she was in was like a 42 year old man. So you can imagine like in 1963, especially giving this show, which was at the time kind of a big deal. It was, it was weird in some circles. It was a joke, but for the BBC specifically, it was a big deal because they really wanted it to succeed. And Sidney Newman gave it to this young woman, uh, to produce. She would then go on to hire a 25-year-old Indian Muslim director by the name of Waris Hussein, who was also gay, by the way, to direct the first few episodes. So the, the, the way that this show was born was so diverse and different from a lot of what you were getting on the BBC at that time. Um, and that's not something that, that has been called a lot of attention to. It's not, you know, I mean, the fact that the Verity Lambert was a woman is something that has obviously been given attention, but you know, some of those other elements aren't necessarily touched upon, but I'm fascinated by it because it was very different for the time. Uh, and Waris Hussein was even struggling at the time to, you know, to get a directing job. He didn't want to take the job at first. He was sort of like, well, if I do this maybe nobody will take me seriously. But, uh, he did end up you know, taking the job and uh, directed more episodes later on as well. So the genesis of the series is is pretty, you know, pretty fascinating. First thing I'm curious about is, like, do, do Doctor Who fans, like, make a big deal about all of this? Because this is like, you know, we talk about inclusivity and, and more of that in, in, in production in Hollywood. Like, do, do Doctor Who fans, like, do they make a big deal about that? Do they... Surprisingly enough, no. It's the, the the interesting thing to me is, I mean, it's noted. It's certainly not something that's just completely like, oh, whatever. Um, but I, I think Verity Lambert in particular gets a lot of um, credit for being a young woman, you know, in this world and and, and helping to shepherd this show along. And, and she certainly paid, uh, um, you know, a lot of homage in, in, in the series itself. Uh, in fact, there's an episode in the the new series. Um, where when the doctor is asked for the name of his parents, um, he, he gives his mother's name as Verity, uh, and his father's name is Sidney, which is obviously, you know, tip of the hat to, to Verity Lambert and Sidney Newman. Um, Waris Hussein, I think that that's something that kind of became a little bit more, um, notable just within the past decade. Um, at least through my eyes, it's not something that I ever you know, read a lot about prior, uh, but there was a wonderful, wonderful, um, drama made uh, for the 50th anniversary of the show called An Adventure in Time and Space, uh, which was, you know, basically a, you know, kind of making of, uh, drama for the show. And obviously Waris Hussein and Verity Lambert were two of the main characters. Um, and, uh, it, it kind of just charted the genesis of the program and, and, and the first couple of seasons of the show. Uh, it, it, you know, it's just a really lovely, 
lovely show. Um, and, you know, Waris Hussein, who's still alive, actually, he's, he's 82 years old. Um, and he was around when they were producing the show. And Mark Gatiss, who was the writer and, and director, I believe, uh, of the movie, um, had him around on set, you know, for authenticity's sake. And he actually taught him how to use some of the cameras because they were using like actual period specific cameras for some of these moments. And, uh, um, they didn't really know how to operate them. So Waris Hussein showed them how to, how to, how to run the cameras, uh, which I thought was really cool. And he talked with the actor that played him. Um, so it, I think it's certainly something that folks are more conscious of now, but it, it doesn't necessarily get brought up in, in, um, the wider sense, which is surprising. And I think part of that is also because frankly, after their involvement ceased, the show was pretty white male dominated um, and it <laughs> yeah. changed. It, it changed a lot in, in a lot of ways, because, for instance, Verity Lambert, um, when she got the the original script from Anthony Coburn, who's the writer of Un- Unearthly Child, um, she actually removed, uh, along with Wars Hussein, a lot of the more misogynistic dialogue that Ian Chesterton had in particular. Uh, there's a point where they're pulling up to um, the the scrapyard and he makes a comment about how, you know, he hates um, women backseat drivers, but the last thing he needs is a woman side seat driver. You know, he, he says some other things that are, you know, overtly sexist uh, to both Barbara and Susan. Um, and I think the doctor even has a line at one point. Um, so they removed a lot of that dialogue um, because it was just sort of like, no, that's not that's not who these people are. And that's not the show that we're making. Unfortunately, that didn't survive the whole run of the show. You know, there's plenty of examples in particular in the third doctor's era. There are a lot of more misogynistic characters and, and uh, the female companions get a lot of that thrown their way. The nice thing is, is towards the end of his era is when Sarah Jane Smith comes along and that character in particular, you know, wasn't going to stand for the same stuff that the the companion before her had which was which was a nice i think uh uh refreshing change but uh but yeah it, it's worth noting that they did make those changes early on um and Waris Hussein is on the record as stating that he faced a lot of racism in his life um you know both uh, you know personally and professionally and that one of the perpetrators of that racism initially was indeed William Hartnell who plays the doctor um he, you know as 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 a lot of people like to generously say about William Hartnell, he was a he was a complicated fellow, as they as they say these days. Um, but one of the things that Hussein has also been on the record as saying is that after they got over their initial bit of tension, their working relationship was amazing. He he really enjoyed working with him. It was kind of a case of like you know Hartnell was one of those people that if he could have the power, he would take the power. But if you stood up to him and showed that that wasn't going to be the way this relationship worked. He would generally kind of come to a sort of like, okay, you're, you're, you're okay. I'll, I'll, I'll work with you on this. Um, and, and so they did have a good working relationship to, to the point that not only did Morris Hussein direct these first four episodes, he came back to direct, um, a, a an eight part episode, uh, series, uh, Marco Polo later on in the, in the, in the run. So, um, yeah, but we could talk about that more later. Should, yeah. uh, you know, and I, was, I was texting you. Uh, I was trying to think, like, where I saw William Hartnell from, and I looked him up. I don't think I've seen him in anything else. He just has some strong John Cullum energy, uh, <laughs> who, who plays uh, the, the abusive star in Catch a Falling Star, Quantum Leap. Um, yeah. And, yeah, everything you just said, I could definitely see. 
all yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, he had a very interesting life. Um, he, you know, he, he grew up fairly poor, um, was, he, he, you know, lived the life of, of an orphan, basically, um, living with grandparents and uncles and, you know, being thrown from house to house, all this sort of stuff. Uh, never really knew his father. Um, he got turned on to the arts from a fairly young age. He would use whatever money he had to go see movies. Um, he ended up being kind of fostered by an artist, um, who I believe was a painter, um, rather famous painter who, who kind of pushed Hartnell into the acting world. Um, he got his start very young. You know, he was 17 years old when he started working uh, with theater companies. You know, he was doing Shakespeare. Uh, he, he had a very long and fruitful theater career. It's where he met his wife, uh, Heather. Um, by all accounts, Heather was a better actor than he was. Heather was a phenomenal actor, apparently. Um, but she kind of gave up her career in order to, you know, be wife and mother. Um, and, uh, you know, he continued working lots of tough guy roles in gangster movies and that sort of stuff, even had some bit parts in American films. Um, he was also very adept at comedy, apparently. Uh, he he was most noticeable before this. Uh, I'm going to forget the name of the show. Um, uh, he, he played a, a sergeant on a, um, on a show, uh, uh, Oh, in, in the decade or so before uh, Doctor Who came along, and he uh, was was fairly well known to the public for that. Um, he also had a role in The Sporting Life, um, which was one of the things that sold Verity Lambert on him for, for Doctor Who, because he was not the original choice. Um, they offered the role to a couple of other people, but Verity Lambert didn't want any of the people that they actually offered the role to. Hartnell was the first one that she actually wanted. Um, so she, she kind of lucked out that the other people that they had offered the part to uh, turned it down. She was. She didn't want a lot of the actors they were looking at were younger, and she didn't want a younger actor for the role. Um, she wanted an older actor, and Hartnell looks even older than his you know fifty five years. He was only like fifty, what fifty four, fifty five, I think, when they made Doctor Who, um, which he does not look. <laughs> um, the Army Game is the name of the other show that I was thinking of. But anyway, uh, yeah. So he was definitely one of those guys that I, I think with the way that he came up. Um, and, and, uh, you know, hard drinking, you know, kind of, uh, uh, a bit of a taskmaster. And then in addition to that, there was definitely, you know, a strain of anti-Semitism and, and racism that kind of ran through his own personal ideology. And it's something that, you know, folks have not really shied away from. It's interesting because there are some people that defend him and say like, I never saw any of that. I never, you know, that was something that he, he never exposed when I was around him. But then of course there are other people that was like, no, mm, I yeah, saw it. <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're all different thing, different people. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, so I uh, so back to the episode. So yeah, I watched the complete first episode, and, and to be clear, an unearthly child is is it four parts in total? Yes, four parts. Uh, so I watched the first part, and I watched half of the second part. Okay, and so far the half of the second part I've been, it's all focused on the doctor, <sighs> and it's a, it's a slog. It's it's between the cavemen, and I still haven't quite figured out if they're all speaking English. Like they're all speaking English, but I haven't figured out like if they're just like running the cavemen speak to the universal translator for us, and if the doctor can understand them. Right. Uh, but I was like, I knew I knew they were going to speak English because of course they were. But I'm just like, oh god, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Y- you know, the show, um, 
and obviously it's hard to use this as an excuse because, you know, we've really tried to contextualize, you know, the shows that we've watched and talked about based on, you know, when they aired and in the case of Quantum Leap, when they were set and, and, and then, you know, today. Uh, but the truth of the matter was, it, you know, it was a different time. There was a different conception of what worked and what didn't work. And especially even for something like that with science fiction, um, you know, the show definitely for the first, you know, for its first run, basically, you, you know, all the way in through to the 80s, you, you know, made some poor choices um, that were Again, very, very common for the time and for that particular um, company, you know, the, the BBC and, and other production companies in, in the UK, uh, you, you know, with yellow face um, or, or tan face, you know, whatnot. Um, they did hire black actors um, to, to work on the show, um, but generally not in any, you know, large roles. Um, although there are a couple of, of, of black actors that really credit their success to the fact that they got to do that show early in their career. And then later on went to, you know, to have a steady career afterwards and whatnot. Um, but yeah, there are, there are some episodes that, that definitely through a modern lens, you know, there's no way to, to really view them other than being problematic. (laughs) Uh, yeah. Not that that's what you were talking about in this instance specifically, but again, just to kind of like put it through, you know, a modern lens. Yeah, of course they were going to have, you know, they were going to have accents. They were going to speak in English. They were going to, you know, sound uh, anything but like what a, a, a caveman might have sounded like. Sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, like, like I said, I mean, like, like, they, like the doctor can understand them. They can all understand each other, right? I was kind of like half watching it watching the kids. Yeah. It's such as like, okay. Cause at first I thought, Oh, they're doing a thing where like, we hear the cavemen speaking in, in English, but like, obviously like they're not really speaking in English and they can't understand each other. Like, no, no, they're yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the conceits of the show that, that, that will, uh, later on be, um, made explicit is that the, the TARDIS has, you know, telepathic circuits and the telepathic circuits basically allow for, you know, universal translator capabilities, much like you would see in Star Trek. Um, and that's something that will come into play, uh, actually quite a bit in the new series in the first, in the first season, uh, in particular, it's, it's made note of a couple of times, um, and, uh, and, and plays heavily into sort of the climax of the first Christmas special as well. Um, the, with the idea that the, something that's made explicit only in the new series. It wasn't really something that was done in the old series that it only works if the doctor's around and conscious and okay. Uh, okay. Like, you know, so in other words, if the doctor gets taken out of the equation, then it would stop working. Yeah. That totally makes sense. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing, uh, yeah, to finishing this first four part episode. I don't know if I'm ready to like to dig in and be committed to watch it yeah. all of yeah, because that's that's a lot. How many seasons did they lose? Because I know they went through a period where they where they disposed of a lot of them. Yeah, so they didn't actually lose any complete seasons. Luckily, um, there, at least one episode from every season survives. Um, there are uh, let's see, how many stories in all? Um, 79 episodes in total are still missing. Um, 
there have been episodes returned even very recently. Um, so that, you know, there's always the hope that more will be found. Uh, obviously as more time passes, the less likely that becomes. Um, but, uh, one of the reasons why episodes are still being found is because the show was sold internationally. So, um, when they would be bought, you know, they would send copies away. So the BBC couldn't destroy those, you know, they could only destroy their own copies. So a lot of times the episodes that have been returned have been from Australia, China, South Africa, like there've been, you know, um, um, episodes found and, and in some cases, entire stories found at one time. So, um, it's, you know, it is a very interesting piece of, of kind of the lore of Dr. Who in general, there've been literally books written only on the subject of the missing episodes. Um, so there's how even a short documentary made on it. How many episodes total were there in the original run? Because I just realized that in my head, I'm always adjusting for like the regular TV schedule of like 20, 22 episodes a season. But I, I'm just realizing that that probably was not the case. Right. Uh, so let's see. There were... Of the first, apparently, uh, of the first six years of the show, there were 253 episodes produced. Um, again, that's individual episodes. Um, trying to think. Uh, in total, after 26 seasons... I mean, there was something like, I, I, I want to say, it, I, I can't remember now. Oh, I honestly sure, no. can't remember yeah. how many episodes, yeah. Because it because the thing the other thing that was different is, is not every season had the same number of episodes. So it's not even the same as being able to say like, okay, you had 26 seasons times 10 episodes. You know what I mean? It's like sure. there, were, there, there were certain seasons had fewer episodes, certain seasons had more episodes. Um, but yeah, it, it's something, I mean, it's something like 700 episodes or something you okay. know, crazy yeah. like that. Individual episodes were made. Uh, you know, of course, the stories themselves are generally four episodes. There are some six episodes uh, uh, shows. There's some eight parters. There's even a couple of ten parters, and there is a twelve parter as well. So there are some huge, you know, um, epic four hour long, you know, uh, five hour long stories. Um, and then there were shorter ones, especially in the 80s when the format of the show changed for a little bit, uh, similar to what it is now where they had 45-minute episodes. And, and so those 45-minute episodes um, sometimes would just be one episode would constitute a story much like it does today. Uh, but there were also a lot of two-parters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was one three-parter, I believe, as well. Sure. So, so as I was like reading stuff up on about it today, like you – you said that there was kind of a series Bible, but there was some stuff that didn't come in. Something that I read said that, that basically there was not a honored series Bible until like the late seventies. Um, that's probably, yeah. Yeah. And, and that when they started honoring it, uh, in the fandom, some people dislike that because they started trying to stick to a continuity. And some of the stories are really badly shoehorned in to fit continuity. Yeah, I mean the early, you know, those those the early days, there's a lot of stuff. It's almost like early Star Trek. There are episodes in the first season of Star Trek where they they don't even they're not even with the Federation. 
they're with like the, you know, United Planetary Expeditions or, you know what I mean? There's like, they're not, there's not even with Starfleet. There's the Starfleet doesn't exist. There's all sorts of stuff that gets mentioned on screen that doesn't fit with, you know, the, what we know as Star Trek today. And Doctor Who, you know, is very similar, especially for the first few seasons. Um, there's a lot of stuff that kind of gets played around. And part of that had to do with the fact that, um, Carol Ann Ford, actually, who plays Susan, mentions this, uh, that she and William Hartnell, like, they created their own backstory for the Doctor and Susan. Uh, they had their own notions of, of what was going on, you know, why they w- were in 1963, all this sort of stuff. And it was all stuff that later on would, you know, get retconned, basically. And even though it was nothing that ever necessarily made... Uh, the screen, you know, or, or scripted, it's interesting to think about that the actors were operating from a place that would be contrary to what we know today as kind of the mythology of the show. Um, but, the, you know, honestly, the show does get towards the end of the second Doctor's run in particular, the show does get pretty cohesive. And through the third Doctor's run, there is very, uh, there is, there is a great deal of continuity with both the character of the Doctor, with where he's from, with, you know, with, with who, uh, his, his race of people are, um, with the other characters that he associates with. There are recurring characters in a way that there hadn't been uh, really before. So I, I personally usually view as the third doctor's era as being the first era that really kind of takes the ball of, of, of this mythology of the character and runs with it. Um, and it uses a few things from the second doctor's era. Uh, but it, you know, honestly, it kind of, it, it, it does disregard a lot of what happened in those first few years. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I think it's just the nature of the way the show was created. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, cause you yeah. didn't do it like we do today. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm interested. Uh, I, I'm, I, I don't know if I want to watch all 700 episodes. Uh, right. but I do want to, uh, yeah, read up on the history of it. Cause I find all that fascinating. I do eventually want to watch all of the new who, um, yeah, because I, I like I said, I've only watched the first season and a few here and there. I started watching the first of, there's one season that is very much inspired by the time traveler's wife. Um, yes. Uh, and that's one of my favorite books. Not one of my favorite movies. Favorite books. Um, <laughs> yeah, whenever I do watch an episode, like it, I feel like the show is objectively like one of the best shows written for television. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just got to get around and just go back to watching it. Yeah. And, and, now yeah. that, and now that you've loaned me your BritBox login info, I can't. Betsy really loves that, Pat too. She's all... Because she's thought about pulling the trigger on, on getting it herself before, which I didn't know. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. yeah. So, now I, I, I... That and I started tackling um, the first episode of Life on Mars. Nice. Because I've seen the nice. American version. I've, just, I've never seen the, the British version. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen... I've only seen the first season of the British version. Or the first first few episodes of the, of the British version. Sure. Um, but... Um, yeah, I I, uh, I I think for me the the thing that sold me on BritBox, even though I own DVDs of every existing episode of Doctor Who, uh, I uh, the the convenience of being able to watch it whenever, wherever, oh, and sure. stream it, you, you know, yeah. was 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 enough for me to kind of pull the trigger. Along with a lot of other stuff. I mean, I, I love British television in general, so and, and a lot of the mystery shows. Yeah, but I mean, even um, then, it's like if you do a, like a year subscription, it's only like seventy bucks a year. I think. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. We're, we are not sponsored by BritBox. <laughs> but we can be. We, yes, yes, we can be. <laughs> <laughs> send, us, send us whatever you want. We'll, we'll plug it away uh, as long as you get us a couple of guests. But um, yeah. <laughs> um, Speaking of, yeah, it's, Carol Ann Ford, still alive. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. In fact, she um, – so the show – uh, obviously, as we kind of mentioned, went off the air in 1989. That was when the last episode of the original series aired. Um, and for the next few years, there wasn't a whole lot of movement, um, at least that, that the public at large was aware of, of what was going to happen next. Behind the scenes, you know, there were hopes of maybe making a movie, of figuring out, you know, what to do. There were, you know, some spec scripts written, that sort of stuff. Um, but the biggest way that Doctor Who carried on was through novels. Um, Virgin Publishing got the license, the rights to Doctor Who and would produce a series of novels throughout the, you know, the nineties. And, um, they really kind of carried the torch. And the approach was that these novels were continuing the story of the televised adventures. So everything that happened on TV counted. And as far as they were concerned, these books counted. And the neat thing was, is they created and constructed narrative arcs that would carry on from book to book to book. Um, You know, most books could be read by themselves, but there were always threads that were kind of woven through, um, you know, from early on in in the range, all the way to the final book in the range. BBC uh, eventually picked up the license again shortly after the television movie aired uh, and started producing their own books, um, which initially, you know, didn't really like they, they, they were written by a lot of the same people. So they kind of were arbitrarily connected. Um, but it, it wasn't until there were some later crossovers that things started to kind of make sense as being, a, you know, a shared world. Um, the reason I bring that up is because there was a, a, a company called Big Finish that started doing audio dramas and they picked up the Doctor Who license. Um, they were granted that license and they have recently been producing audios uh, with Carol Ann Ford as Susan um, and, and basically take her character into the the modern, the new Who, uh, as having taken part in the Time War, which of course is a huge element of the, the new series. So uh, she's not only is she still alive, but she's still working as Susan to this day. Wow. <laughs> the gift that keeps um, on giving. Yeah. So the show has always found a way to kind of be kept alive, you know, throughout the past nearly 60 years. Um, and, and it all, it all started on a foggy night, at 76 Totters Lane. I am Foreman Scrapyard with a big blue box. I will say that I think you're right in a lot of ways, as far as the, the character of the doctor in the first episode, to me, I am much more like to, my favorite character in the first episode is Barbara. I, I just think that Barbara is is lovely. You know, Jacqueline Hill is is, is wonderful uh, in the role. Uh, I love the fact that she and Ian, um, by the time the script made air anyway, are, are equals in a lot of ways. Um, that yes, they rely on kind of old notions of Ian having to kind of be the muscle, if you will. Um, but but when you come to the way that they talk to each other, the way that they respect one another, there's there's uh, a great equal line drawn between the two of them, which I love. Um, and I just love that she really propels the plot of this first episode. You know, she's the one that's interested in where Susan comes from. She's the one that's like, Ian, come on, you know, check this out with me. Like, let's see what's going on. And, and I really love that. And I love the, um, 
you know, the interactions that she ends up having with the doctor and Susan once they're inside the TARDIS. Um, obviously the TARDIS itself, in addition to the creation of the doctor is probably the most important element of the show. And the fact that it is in, in many ways, the first character we see on screen, uh, first regular character, uh, aside from the policeman, I think is, um, is really lovely. Uh, and it's just a genius piece of, of, of invention, you know, this thing that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside and travels in space and time can go anywhere, anytime. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a license for creativity. You mentioned the twilight zone earlier. And, you know, one of the, the genius things about the twilight zone is Rod Serling created this show that it could go, you know, anywhere, anytime, uh, you know, and exist within that conceit and, and doctor who, you know, really takes that to a whole new level, you know, by having these characters be able to do anything. And it, and it's just a lovely, I think it's a lovely platform for the show and, and the bedrock of, of everything that comes after. Sure. And not to mention that, you know, later on they come up with the doctor regenerating so that they don't, yes, they'd have to, you know, which was originally was a plot device. So they didn't have to end the series when William Hartnell had to leave. Um, right. Right. So, yeah. 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 And I mean, and the thing is, is like, I'm not in any way like trying to uh, lessen the the impact of William Hartnell because, I mean, he was indeed um, central to the success of the show. Um, you know, he was the one that went and, and, and you know, did the parades and, mm-hmm. you know, the opening of children's hospitals and that, you know what I mean? Like he was in the public consciousness. He was the doctor. He, he loved playing the doctor. He saw it as, 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 as a duty, as a great responsibility. Unfortunately, his health was in rapid decline at around the time the show was, was being made. And by the time, you know, by the time the last season that he was a part of aired, um, you know, he could barely remember his lines. He was, he was struggling. He was having trouble. And the thing, the funny thing is, is that early on, William Russell, who plays Ian Chesterton, you know, he said that Hartnell would purposely flub his lines if a take wasn't going right. And, and directors started to see through that and they would just film over it. But by the, but the truth is, is by the third season, his wife would even attest to this. He was in such poor health that, yeah, he just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and, important, know, so. to, yeah, important to note that what we're saying here is like back in the day, like these TV episodes, they were filmed like plays. Yes. Like, like they, like they didn't stop and like redo a take. If an actor, like, like you said, if they flubbed a line, like in, like they would have to ad lib and work their way out of it, right? Yeah, oftentimes these episodes, while they were never aired live, they were filmed in a live manner on the studio. Um, you know, if something really went to hell, they 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 could you know reset. But a lot of times, if you were deep into a scene that you didn't have a good stopping point for, and and a flub occurred, yeah, you would just keep going because you because the the cost and time of editing an episode was such that they weren't able to edit these episodes quick enough to do that. So if something happened towards the beginning of a scene or towards the end of a scene, you might be able to kind of fudge it or something. But yeah, if if you've got a length, a lengthy scene that you're playing and and a flub would work to come in the middle of it, you just had to keep going. Yeah. Because, like, just, like, editing was difficult yeah. <laughs> in this time. So, yeah, if you didn't have to do it, you didn't do it. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and when you see, when you see like, the, the multiple camera angles and stuff like that, I mean, these weren't single camera shows. They were multi-cam shows. You know, they, they had, like, you know, three cameras going at one time to cover different angles. Um, 
Yeah. So it's it, it, it yeah it, it is kind of fascinating the way that that the, that the shows were produced uh, in general. And oh, something else that I do want to mention that I found really fascinating: the gentleman who designed actually did the production design for the TARDIS, uh, Peter uh, P- Peter Berchaki, uh He um, didn't want to work on the show, which again is kind of a running theme of a lot of people early on in the show. He didn't want to work on the show. Uh, Verity Lambert didn't want to work with him either. Waris Hussein didn't want to work with him. Uh, the, the the general consensus was is that he was uh, you know didn't like women and he didn't like you know darker people, so he didn't want to work with them. And they were like, well, we don't want to work with you either. However, as Verity Lambert is on the record of saying this, is not me saying this, credit where credit is due, he did design the interior of the TARDIS. So what we see then all the way through to what we see today, the roundels, the console, all of it, like he's the man that did that. And Barry Newberry, who took over for him uh, after the first episode was shot, the pilot episode was shot, uh, he uh, loved it. And he was, and, and at first he was upset to find out that some of it had already been destroyed because a lot of times they didn't keep these things from episode to episode, you know, they just got rid of it. Uh, and so he was very adamant that it's like, whatever we've got, we need to keep and whatever we don't have, we need to recreate. Um, because they, yeah, they loved the aesthetic of it and, uh, and it's something that's carried through to this day. Yeah. It's a beautiful piece inside and out. Indeed. And the sound effect. There was, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I should say, maybe we should uh, say this and then transition to what else we're going to talk about. Uh, so this was like a few years ago. Uh, I'm a former massage therapist. Still, still do it part-time. Um, but yeah, I was working with a client. This is when I was like working at a spa. I was like in the middle of massage. And this is like big, buff, military dude tattoos, you know. And then just like right in the middle of his massage. Woo-woo. Woo 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 woo! I'm not doing the sound effect justice, <laughs> but I like I had seen enough Doctor Who, like I recognized the sound of the TARDIS. Yeah, and I'm like, "Is that the TARDIS?" And he's like, "Yeah, that that's my father." <laughs> Fantastic, excellent. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, yeah. Uh, I will throw this out there real quick, just kind of uh, as a note to that, that the sound design for the show was something that Sidney Newman at first was not too keen on. The opening theme, the opening titles, the, you know, the TARDIS noise, all that sort of stuff. He was like, you know, I, I, I don't like it. I think you need to change it. And Verity Lambert fought him on it and was like, no, we need to. And and one of the other um, BBC production folks also uh, fought her on it pretty hardcore. And uh, it was so successful that after the fact... Uh, Sidney Newman trusted her, so he was like, all right, if you want to do it, go for it. The other guy, uh, whose name escapes me right now, uh, apparently called her up and was like, I'll never question you again. I will. I, you were absolutely right. It is brilliant, and you know, congratulations uh, on the success of the show. Uh, which is something else, too, that I think is important that you know, she really did prove a lot of people wrong, because there were a lot of people that didn't think that it was going to... Uh, succeed, you know. They thought that you know, they hoped that maybe it would run for four or five years at most. Uh, some people didn't think it was going to last one season. And uh... <laughs> history, history proved them wrong on that one. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so shift another thing. So you finished the Good Place. You and Jessica finished I that did. this week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah just the full, full spoiler alerts for anybody listening. If you haven't watch the good place yet and uh and uh and you think you might want to watch it first off you should 
The Good Place is objectively one of the best TV shows in, in modern history. You should definitely go check it out, and you should definitely turn off the podcast now uh, because it's one of the rare cases of, of a TV series with high expectations sticking the landing of the yes. finale. Uh, so totally worth it to not get spoiled. So anyway, that being said, you did have some reservations with the final episode. Yeah, so, um, you know, we don't want to go super in-depth, but what I will say is the first two seasons, I think, in particular, are brilliant. I love the way that the show is uh, set up. Um, I love the pacing of it. I love the narrative drive of it, the characters. Um, I will say, by the time I got to the third season, a couple of the characters started to kind of annoy me a little bit. Um, Tahani, in particular, uh, really started to annoy me. Uh, Jason a little bit, uh, but he was still endearing enough that, you know, I I got over it pretty quickly. Um, that said, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with everything that that you just said. I think it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant show. The performances, the writing, production design is just so well done and deserves, you know, so many more eyes on it than I, than I think what it got. Luckily, uh, it was allowed to kind of create you know, complete its, its arc as, as the showrunner wanted it to. Um, but I felt the third season, yeah, the third season got a little, uh, away from, I think what made the first two seasons so magical and the fourth season, unfortunately kind of continued that, which is too bad because I thought the third season ended in such a brilliant way. And, and even though I, I feel like it wasn't as strong as the first two, I feel like it ended so well that I was really looking forward to the fourth season. And Jessica and I finished the third season in such a way that we didn't have access to the fourth season yet. So we had to wait. Um, and it was excruciating because I was just like, I got I, I, I to gotta keep watching. And then, honestly, the first five or six episodes of the fourth season were a little rough for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, remind, uh, third season ends with Chidi choosing to get his memory wiped. Yep. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And then the and then the um, and then the fourth season obviously picks up right after, and it they introduce four well three new characters and one character that we already had seen in the third season, Simone, who was not someone that I loved either, but whatever. Uh, and the four characters, they you know they have to kind of. Uh, part of the plot is that they need to get them to earn their way into the good place. Um, and oh, yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just felt like it just didn't, it, it, it dragged for me. It was, it was a few episodes too, too long. But that being said, uh, the finale, I say this in all sincerity, Chidi's story in particular and his departure is one of the most beautiful and moving pieces of television I have ever witnessed in my entire life. The, everything about it was just so beautifully done from the time they're sitting at dinner, his decision to move on, Eleanor taking him to Greece and to Athens and Paris. And, you know, just everything about it was so exceptionally beautiful. Uh, it, it moved me in a way that I honestly, I haven't been moved by a piece of television in, in, in a very long time. 
unfortunately, there's about 15 minutes of episode after that, and I don't feel like those 15 minutes lived up to it. And I also, uh, Jessica and I both agreed that I didn't feel like Eleanor was ready to go. I felt like the show decided that the show needed to end, and they decided that Eleanor has to go. That's our ending. And so that's what they went with. But I was like, she's not ready to go. Nothing tells me at all. And I think Kristen Bell's a wonderful actor, so I don't think it was her. But the, the script, really, nothing tells me that she is ready to go. Sure. I hadn't so thought that's about just that. Those are my initial thoughts. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I hadn't thought about that when I first watched it, but I think that's a totally valid critique of it. Yeah. But, of course, I mean, they had to. Right. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there was any way you could have satisfactorily ended the series of just... Chidi left. Eleanor staying. Okay. Uh, right. I, you know, the, the, one of the things that I thought, and this is not, you know, I, I always try to stay away from saying, you know, and we did it during Quantum Leap a lot, but whatever. I, you know, I'm not trying to say that they should have changed anything or compromised their vision. But if I had been crafting the ending, I think I would have done it in a way that, you know, Eleanor helps out Michael. Um, she helps out Mindy and then we see her sitting on that couch where she, you know, we saw her with Chidi by herself watching the sunset and she just says, Janet, we hear the little, you know, ding and that's it. That's how it ends. Because to me, I would have rather had a little bit of ambiguity. Plus the other thing that pissed me off is it's like, really, you did all that just for the punchline of Ted Danson saying, take it sleazy. Like... <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but, how, I, you know, I, I did read a thing of uh, how difficult Ted Danson found that last line. Like, mm. like, like the weight of knowing, like, this is the last line of the series. And, sure. it's, and it's take it sleazy. Right. Like, right. How, how do you stick that, that line? <laughs> and I think he did it well. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he's phenomenal in the show. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. They're all so good. And I had never seen, you know, William Jackson Harper, who plays Cheaty, in anything before. But my God, like, what what a performance. Yeah. What a brilliant, brilliant performance. And especially what he does in the fourth season after he, you know, comes back and gets all of his memories sure. restored. Like, just, and that, it's just beautiful. Just so beautiful. Yeah. It was wonderful. I will say this, and we should start to wrap it up. So I knew that there was a Parks and Rec cameo in the final, oh. in the final episode. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I knew that going in. Yeah, um, and, and that and that cameo is Nick Offerman basically appearing as himself, uh, right? Telling the honey, "Well, I, I have nothing else to teach you in woodwork. I, I will leave." Um, but I, uh, Betsy, and I, we watched the final episode on Hulu, and I don't know. Why? But when we went to queue up, like from the next to last episode to the last episode, instead of playing the next the next and last episode of The Good Place, it started playing the final episode of Parks and Rec, which was what? which was created by the same guy, uh, Michael Schur. Yeah. So, and, and I and I and I had read that The Good Place really swung for the fences in the finale, and they stuck the landing. I had seen some Parks and Rec, but I had never seen the final episode of Parks and Rec, mm. which they kind of do a flash forward to the future where everybody ends up. So I'm yeah. watching the first five minutes 
of the Parks and Rec finale thinking, fuck, the good place, really? Like, what? Like, they're doing, like, this <laughs> weird Star Trek, these are the voyages, the last episode of The Good Place is an episode of Parks and Rec. What the and then Betsy's like, no, no, check and make sure. Like, oh. Yeah. I don't know why that happened, but it happened. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that's another show that, that I feel like really stuck the landing. I loved the Parks and Rec finale. I feel like Parks and Rec is one of those rare shows that, in, in, in my opinion, um, almost got better as it went on. Um, you know, I would certainly say, you know, fourth season or so it was, is, it was probably the peak, but, but it didn't it didn't struggle too much in the final couple of seasons. You know, it, it really maintained a high level of quality. And I felt like the last season, uh, was, was lovely. I loved it. I yeah. know some people are, are on the fence, but I loved it. I really got, I think I, I really, uh, like I watched like the second and third season and then I just kind of fell off of it just because of, of life. Um, I tried watching the first season and someone recommended, uh, just skip the first season. Like they haven't figured out what they're doing yet. It's it's yeah. ba- it's basically an office clone in the first season. It just, is, just yeah, yeah. So I skipped ahead of the second season and I enjoyed it. I just never went back and and finished it. But um, I, I will say, if you come late to the party in Parks and Rec, after you've seen Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> it looks like Chris Pratt has just really let himself go. <laughs> Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Um, but yeah, back to the good place r- real quick. Uh, I, I think that, f- you know, for me, overall, it was, it was a very satisfying show and a very satisfying finale. Um, I, I think that there were the stakes were high enough in the final season that when decisions really started to get made and, 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 and you know, all those triggers really started to get pulled um that for me i it, i would have been hard pressed to be um satisfied had it not been had it not lived up in some ways to to my expectations and maybe that's one of the reasons too why that last episode is a struggle for me because again you know chidi's departure is so fucking beautiful that after it was going to be hard for anything to really live up to it and and maybe in a way that's why I would have rather preferred a non-ending because it would have given me it it still would have allowed me a sense of closure because everybody was where they were supposed to be because really at the end of the day like from the first episode to to the last like Eleanor just wants to be in the good place right so why not just leave her there eventually she would have gone and we know that but by showing us her by showing her walking through and especially showing her in the very you know um, you know, fully realized way that they did very explicitly showing us what happens when she walks through the, the doorway. It was just kind of like, I don't know. It took a little bit away from, from me for some reason. Sure. Rem- remind me, is there any significant passage of time when she leaves and when she decides to leave? I want to say it's, it's, it's like 3.2 Jeremy Bermes, which I don't know if we're supposed to think those are years or, or what longer are. or what, but okay. yeah, but it, but it does seem like it's been there. Some time has passed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wonder, cause I can remember if it was like a hundred years later or a thousand years later, she finally decides to leave or, or what it is. Yeah. I'm right. sure it's somewhere out there. Someone has made a calculator of <laughs> how long Jeremy Bermes are. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Cool. It's an incredibly rewarding show. And one of the things to uh, I'll say is that like it reminded me not in any way similar plot thematically or whatever, but it reminded me a little bit of Arrested Development in the way that Arrested Development was able to plant jokes in the in the pilot and pay them off as far forward as the finale. Sure. And I think that The Good Place did a wonderful job of creating humor that that would pay off down the road from mm-hmm. time to time. Yeah. Um Timothy Oliphant being a great example oh, of sure. that. Because yeah. he gets mentioned, he gets mentioned like early in the show. Then the judge mentions him, and then and then finally there he is, and it's just like, oh god, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, I had his IMDb page pulled up. It was like, did you? Yeah, did you appreciate that little? Yeah, yeah, that was nice. It was good. Yeah. Cool. We should start yeah. to wrap this up. Us two tired dads. Uh, I will say, I'll save this for next week. I did finish the Queen's Gambit the other night. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, so I'll save that for for next time. Uh, yeah, we should definitely chat more about that. Yeah, but that was, uh, yeah, between WandaVision and uh, and The Queen's Gambit, like right now I'm just interested in uh, limited run TV series right now. Come in, yeah. come in, do 10 episodes or less, stick the landing, get out. Something interesting about WandaVision, there's a app called Letterboxd, which is uh, only deals with films. Um, but WandaVision is on there. It's treated as a, like a, you know, 375 minute film, which I thought was really interesting. That is interesting. Uh, by the way, if you, if you have not watched the, like the behind the scenes doc that's on Disney now, I definitely recommend. Oh, cool. I definitely will. Yeah. And, uh, and hey, we're just a few days away from Falcon and Winter Soldier. So, so. yeah, you know what? What I didn't realize this is note maybe we should end on is uh, like like the like the metal lining around Vision's head. That is entirely CGI. Yeah, I had no idea until they showed like the behind the scenes. Of, Same uh, here. Yeah, because uh, I don't know if you've seen like behind the scenes photos of like because like it's it's just him in the makeup and they got some like you know plotting things for the for the for the CGI and his ears they're kind of painted but they're kind of not because they don't have to worry about the ears because they're going to get right CGI'd out I did see yeah I saw some pictures and I and I was kind of like oh that's just weird <laughs> yeah cuz um cuz like a thing in the doc like they were talking about like there there were some instances like where like uh, like one production crew, like they would like go to 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 Kevin. How do you say his last name? Whatever. Um, well, Kevin Fage. Kevin mm-hmm. Fage. They were like, "Does Vision really need to be a synthesoid in this scene? Like, can he be human? You know, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, can we can we do less CGI in this scene? Um, but yeah, I'll have to watch that. I am interested to see some behind the scenes stuff. But um, yeah. Well, I, you know, I'll tell you what, this has been so much fun. I could have kept talking about Doctor Who, you know, for quite a while. Yeah. And perhaps, perhaps, you know, the, I, I will at one point, you know, do a, a, a little podcast on the genesis of the show just to kind of fill in some more blanks. Sure. Uh, of our of our initial conversation. But um, it's a treat for me. Uh, you know, whenever we get back to it, uh, I will, I will cherish that. And, uh, I look forward to talking about the new series as well and, and visiting some classic episodes. Cause I think there's some classic stories that would be a lot of fun to talk about through our, our filter. Yeah. You know, with everything that we've set up, you know, quantum, quantum leap wise. So, uh, so I thank you for, for, you know, 
taken that that leap with me. And, oh, yes, uh, I will. Yeah, I'm sure I will finish uh, the rest of Unearthly Child this week, and I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit next week. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. So. Um, yeah, well, we hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, I, you know, again, I'm so excited to talk about Doctor Who that if anybody has any other comments or wants to say anything, please feel free to, to, to jump aboard um, and uh, hit us up on, on, you know, the Facebook or the, the social media places. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Eventually, we're gonna say, we're gonna have to say, "Give us a follow on Apple Podcasts." We're gonna say, yeah, "Give us a the, follow." They're changing. Yeah. They're changing the language. Moving so along, we're gonna be subscribed. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think for years, like we called it, like subscribe on iTunes, but then they changed it to Apple Podcasts. I was thinking, ah, right? Oh well, we'll figure it out. Thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next week for for something. Absolutely. All right. Take care, y'all. Bye bye. I want to stay